Thanks for joining us today for the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast, a place where trauma, hardship, and challenge meet faith and hope for the future. Here is your host, Jill Riley. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. Season three has arrived. I am so excited to share with you this season new guests, new topics, and some great conversations. Thank you so much for joining us, and here's today's guest. Welcome to Post Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and today I'm super excited to have Terry Tucker on with me to talk about um, just his amazing life and some adventures that he's had. Hi, Terry. How you doing, Jill? Good, good, good. So how's life in Denver right now? Life is good. Hey, it's the spring. Uh, well, you wouldn't know that. It's about 95 was degrees gonna... <laughs> here. So uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's going well. No complaints. Well, good. Well, since this is uh, going to actually air in January, if you like give hints of summer, maybe it'll warm people up a little bit. <laughs> well, that's a nice thing about Denver. You know, I mean, my wife and I are both Midwesterners, you know, and when winter comes, I mean, it comes and it stays and it's gloomy and it's gray. I mean, here in Denver, you can get, you know, 25 inches of snow one day and it'd be sunny and 50 degrees the next. So yep, it's you know, true. You don't like the it's, weather, just hang around for a while. Well, that's what we say about, let's say about Montana too. But right now, Montana is a hot mess. So yeah. <laughs> it's historic flooding and it's just crazy. So oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah. So tell me, what was it like growing up in Chicago? Chicago was a lot of fun, you know, big city. My mom and dad were born there. My grandparents are from there and stuff like that. So it, it was it was a lot of fun, a lot of things to do, you know, a lot of opportunities and things like that growing up as a kid. And, you know, I had a lot of family around, you know, a lot of cousins yeah. and and things like that, aunts, uncles and, and stuff. So it was it was great in that regard because you could spend a lot more time with family. And, and my wife and I, since we've been married, have lived all over the United States and where we went to college and things like that. But it, there's, you know, like they say, there's no place like home. So I, I really true. enjoyed Chicago. Both my brothers are still there. Uh, my mother is, is there. My father passed away quite a few years ago. But yeah, the, the family's still there and Chicago's home base. What part of Chicago did you grow up in? South side. South side. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What, like what neighborhood? Uh, I, I grew up in sort of the Oak Lawn suburbs. My mom okay. and dad grew up in uh, Inglewood, which unfortunately now is, is kind of a, almost a war zone with yeah. you know, everybody getting shot and all the gangs and stuff Inglewood, like that. Inglewood, Rose, Rosemont, all of those. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's a shame to see your, you know, especially for my mom, you know, where she grew up to be an area where it's just not safe to go anymore. Right. Right. Yeah, it's true. It has over the years changed. And I'm sure um, during the years when you lived there, it hadn't quite quite turned that corner to being so dangerous yet. But it certainly certainly has that ilk right now. So so when did you fall in love with basketball? Um, I think when I first started out, I, I at, at the time we had we had moved from Chicago. We were living in Columbus, Ohio um, for a few years. And, you know, I started playing, you know, kind of peewee basketball and and I just happened to be on the same team with the son of the assistant coach at Ohio State University. And so I, I you know, it was just luck. I mean, you know, they, they kind of draw kids and OK, you're on this team and you're on this. I, I mean, there was no it was just fate. And, and so I was able to 
to go to basketball camps, the Ohio State basketball camp with Fred Taylor, who nobody knows, but Fred Taylor won a national championship with Ohio State back in the in the 1960s and things like that. So it was it was really kind of a big deal for me. And it was like I, I didn't know what I didn't know, you know, having right, access, right. you know, to all these these people. And I'll and I'll never forget this. I was I was walking into the gym and we played in the, the little grammar school, you know, public school and, and the gym doubled as a lunchroom and an auditorium. I mean, it was, it really right. wasn't more of a multi-purpose room than it was actually a gym. And I walked in one night before a game with my dad and, and uh, the assistant coach of Ohio state was there to see his son. His name was Bob Burkholder. And he was walking in with a recruit by the name of Luke Whitty. And Luke Whitty was like seven feet, two inches tall. He actually had a <laughs> duck to get into the door. And wow. I was just in awe. I was like, oh yeah. my God, this is the biggest man I've ever seen in my life. And so it just started, you know, I got to go to basketball camp that summer. And it was just, the more I got to do it, the more fun I had at it, the more fun I had, the more I wanted to do it. And as a result, I got better at it. And so it was just sort of, you know, kind of the hamster on the wheel. I just kind of want to yeah. keep doing this because it's yeah. a lot of fun. So how tall are you? You want the smart aleck answer or do you want the true answer? <laughs> Whichever you want to give. I'll give you both. The, the, the true answer is I'm six foot eight. The smart aleck answer is I'm five twenty. <laughs> All right. Six foot eight. Well, I have a, I have a friend who, uh, her brother is six eleven, and I, man, I feel like a midget. I know it's, you know, I've got, I'm six, eight. I've got a brother who's six foot seven, who was a pitcher for the university of Notre Dame. Another brother who's six foot six, who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers, the national basketball association. And then my dad was six, five. So I sort of joked that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, there wasn't a prayer's chance you were going to see anything that was going on, you know, but, but our five foot eight inch mother was always the boss. You know, it didn't matter how big, tall, strong <laughs> we were, whatever mom said, that's the way it went. That's the way it went. Yeah. So are your kids tall? Uh, my wife and I have one daughter. Yeah. She's uh, six foot two, actually went to the Air Force Academy to play basketball. She was recruited that's to play great. basketball there, did her freshman year and then blew out her knee. And that was the end of basketball for her. Yep, that'll do it. So then you ended up playing for the Citadel, right? I did. What was that experience like? Uh, unique. Um, you know, I, the, the Citadel is a, it's in Charleston, South Carolina, which pretty much the first shots of the Civil War were fired by Citadel cadets. They fired on a, a ship called the Star of the West that was trying to uh, resupply Fort Sumter, which sits in the middle of Charleston Harbor. And the Citadel is very proud of that. They're very proud that they, you know, had a hand in in starting, uh, you know, the Civil War. And so, you know, here I am, this kid from Chicago, you know, that goes down south to play basketball. And I certainly didn't understand a lot of the traditions and stuff like that. It was also, you know, a military school. It was also an all-male military school when I went there. It has since gone co-ed. But, you know, it it was entirely, it was like going to to the Army, but going to college at the same time. And, oh, and then, by the way, you're going to play basketball. So there there were a lot of balls in the air that I had to juggle. I played some great basketball. I got to play against Michael Jordan his freshman year, my senior year in college. Oh, wow. You got to play against North Carolina State, who won a national championship the year after I graduated from college. So I got to play against a lot of great competition. I had a great coach in Les Robinson. Um, but it was, I, 
I wasn't I wasn't mature enough to be honest with you at the mm. time. You know, I was I was a kid. I was away from home for the first time. I was homesick. I you know I wasn't emotionally mature. So it it was it was a difficult experience, but it forced me to grow up. Yeah, as yeah, as college does, you know, can anyway, but you know, you add some of those other pressures and other responsibilities on top of it. It really magnifies that, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And and you know, to ask a, a 17 or an 18 year old kid, you know, hey, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? You know, what do you want to major in? I mean, I majored in business because my dad told me to major in business. I, I really, I, I I didn't love it. You know, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, this is my passion. I probably would have gone another direction, maybe political science or something like that. I'd like to read. My my roommate in college was a for for the three years you're assigned your freshman year at the Citadel, but after that you can choose. It was an English major, and you know would I I still remember to this day you know sleeping with the headphones on on Friday nights because he was up typing papers all night long. You know after oh, a book man. he had to turn in stuff like that. But you know I mean it is what it is. I'm I'm not I'm not disappointed. I majored in business. I learned a lot, but it, it just wasn't my passion. Wasn't like your said, passion. Yeah. I mean, how, yeah. Many, how many kids know what they want to do when they're that age? Right. Right. And so something I didn't know that you and I have talked about is I thought that if you went to the Citadel, that you automatically entered into the armed services. And that's not the case. It is not. And and as you and I discussed earlier, I, I was recruited by West Point, by Army. Uh, actually, Mike Szczeski, the coach who just retired from Duke now, he was the coach. And he said, you know, hey, come play for me in Army. And I was like, eh, I don't know if I want the commitment afterwards. And so I, I said no to him, which, you know, makes me probably the biggest idiot in the world. You know, he's one of the greatest <laughs> coaches and not the greatest college coach of all time. And, and then had an opportunity. I, I mean, my parents raised us, you know, in a very disciplined home. I mean, every adult we talked to, it was yes, ma'am, you know, no, ma'am, yes, you know, that kind of thing. So the, the discipline part was not hard for me to adjust to, but it, it was, yeah, I like that environment. I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into. And, and, and that's not an excuse. I just, right. I just, I didn't do my homework. And, and so, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a unique experience because I'm like, okay, I can handle the military. I just don't know if I want the commitment afterwards. And that's the nice thing about the Citadel. You, you have to take ROTC all four years. Um, for those who don't know, reserve officer training corps, you know, you to learn to be an officer, uh, but you can choose which one you want. You can choose Navy, you can choose Air Force, you can choose Army, you can choose Marines as part of the Navy. Um, I chose Air Force because it was more in line with business, more in line with my major. Uh, but I did not have to make the commitment. I could have if I wanted to. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. But then your business degree took you into marketing? It did. My business, you know, I graduated in 1982 and the economy was horrible. And so I, it was, you know, and, and again, back then there were there was no internet. There was no, you know, I mean, finding a job was you grabbed the newspaper, you called up people you knew and said, hey, do you know of anybody who's looking to hire? So you didn't have the resources that you have today. And I was lucky enough, we were living in Columbus, Ohio at the time. And Wendy's International, the hamburger chain, uh, had an opening for a field marketing trainee. And I applied for it and, and got the job. So I, I started my my illustrious business career, basically making copies, 
you know, ordering and picking up lunch and gassing up the company cars of the field marketing manager. Right. That was real, real tough business stuff. So yeah. Yeah. And so, but that took you higher up into the into the organization, didn't it? It did. I started out as a trainee when I left about three and a half years later. I was a I, I had moved out of field marketing into new product marketing. Uh, I was a supervisor at the time and you know was involved in all kinds of you know, new product marketing is just that. What new products are we looking to put into the system? And at the time, we were looking at everything, you know, putting in breakfast as an entire new day part, you know, putting in hot dogs, you know. And, and it was always fun because we, we had this these, these booths in the corporate office and, and there was a woman who kind of ran this and she would go around every morning and like, hey, uh, we're doing a taste test today. Do you want to, you know, around lunchtime? Do you want? <laughs> and so, you know, and you never knew what it was for. I, I mean, you might have a, you know, you were in a, an entirely sterile room with a, do- a little door and, you know, the door would open and like a hamburger would come, you know, come your way. And you had no idea whether they were testing a new hamburger patty, a new ketchup, you know, a new lettuce or whatever. And then you would be asked to eat it and you could eat the whole thing or you could just take one bite and then make comments, you know, ask questions about it. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, frosties and salads. And I mean, so it was a lot of fun. Interesting. Lunch plans. It's like, yeah, sure. I'll be happy to do that. So it was kind of a perk of the job. That's funny. So uh, is there anything that is that you helped bring to market that exists today? Uh, breakfast, what I was pretty involved in breakfast. I mean, bre- the reason I left Wendy's was because, you know, I was at Wendy's kind of during the heyday of fast food when everything was was great. And, you know, everybody was kind of fat and happy. And then kind of the market, the bottom fell out of the market. And I saw that and I'm like, you know what, if I don't leave on my own, if I don't find something else, I very well make it let go. So I that that's the reason mm-hmm. I meant. So we put, you know, uh, breakfast in as a day part. I was involved in, in that. But then, you know, after the fast food bottom fell out, everybody kind of retooled. They went back to the basics, you know, hamburgers, fries and drinks. And so Wendy's got rid of breakfast. They've since brought it back. So, you know, it's it's sort of cyclical in terms of what people want and, you know, what the competition is doing and things like that. So the breakfast today was not the breakfast that I was involved okay. in back then. So Okay, um, interesting. Yeah. Hot dogs was another big thing we almost did. We came pretty close to doing it, but chose not to do it because the thing you got to understand with fast food is that if you put something in, you're going to cannibalize something else. So if I go to Wendy's and you have hot yeah. dogs, instead of ordering a hamburger, I'm going to order a hot dog. So you're cannibalizing a hamburger for the sake of a hot dog. So you've got to make sure right. that, you know, it's like all of a sudden we're not selling hamburgers, we're just selling hot dogs and that. So you got to understand what your business model is and how you want to keep it that way. Yeah, interesting. So what do you think are some elements of your early career that made you successful at what you were doing? Characteristics. I, mean, I really kind of go back to my to my parents. I, you know, as as I mentioned, you know, I had three brothers. We were all athletes. We were all doing things. My parents taught us the value, you know, of, of loving people, caring for people, supporting people, and and, and things like that. And, and and not you know, and not taking any gruff from people. You know, and mm-hmm. it's like, look, I, I am I am the way I am. I, I think I'm a good person. I, but you know what? There were there were there were just a lot of different people, a lot of different personalities, a lot of people that was like, Hey, it's all about me or, you know, yeah. How can I help you? And and so, you know, I think it was real important that our parents taught us 
the value of family. And I think that just permeated out as I grew up and, and realized that, yeah, that's helping people being of service in some way is really kind of, I think, what we're all here for. And yeah. so, you know, whether it's in business or, you know, when I got into law enforcement or even now when, I, when I've got cancer, you know, it's still about making a difference, making a positive difference in other people's lives. So I really, I have to go back to what our parents taught us. And, and, and I think that just worked in, in the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, for, for those that are raised with, um, that kind of advantage with having parents of character, um, or, and, or spirituality, um, whatever it is that is their anchor and they're able to pass that on to their kids. What a gift. It is, you know, and, and it's because I always, you know, I find myself apologizing because I, I, you know, I don't come from a broken home. I don't come from, you know, having all these bad things happen that people use as sort of a springboard, you know, like I'll never have that happen in my life. And I, I was just the opposite. I had a lot of the good stuff, a lot of support and and love. And, and you know, it was just it, we had, it was fun being a family. Even now, when my brothers and I get together, you know, we, we just we sit together and we tell stories and we laugh and we just yeah. laugh and laugh laugh and laugh. And I mean, we're the kind of family where literally at Thanksgiving dinner, if you say pass a roll, a roll may come flying across the table. So <laughs> you better have some good hands there, you know, to catch that thing. And that, I mean, that's just kind of the family we were. Yeah. Yeah. So do you guys, when you get together, do you talk about all of the things that you did that your mom and dad don't know about? Cause that's what my kids are starting to do to me. And I think, where are you, where were your parents? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we do. I mean, we, we talk a lot about, you know, remember when mom and dad went out and we had this babysitter and this is what we did to her and, you know, and, and stuff oh. like that. So, yeah, we do. My, my parents traveled a decent amount. And so, you know, we kind of had babysitters for the weekend or our grandmothers, you know, for the weekend and stuff like that, which, were, you know, yeah, we, we tried to do some things we probably shouldn't have done. But at the same time, especially with our grandmothers, you know, to just have access to just your grandmother for an entire weekend was amazing, you know, yeah. and, and you don't realize that until you're older and you're like, man, you know, I, I wish right. I would ask my grandmother this or that, you know, so. Yeah, definitely. So then you went into law enforcement. What drew you to that? My grandfather. Um, my grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954 and was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. Uh, But my dad always remembered the stories my grandmother told of, you know, that knock on the door of, you know, Mrs. Tucker, grab your son. My dad was was an infant at the time, you know, and come with us. Your husband's been shot. And so when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, you know, my dad was, oh, absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out and get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids, you know, and live happily ever after. And but that's the life my father wanted me to live. That wasn't the, the purpose that I felt I was to live. And so when I graduated from college, I had I had a major choice in my life. My father and my grandmother were both dying of cancer. And so I could have said, well, sorry, dad, you know, what? I got to go blaze my own trail now. Good luck. Or out of love and respect for what you and mom gave us growing up, I will do what you want to do. So if you look at my resume, my resume sort of makes sense if you understand the backstory. You know, my first two jobs in Wendy's and then I was a hospital administrator. I sort of joke. I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and, and followed my own dreams. And, you know, yeah. I was a 37 year old rookie policeman, which by most accounts is pretty old to be doing that job. 
Huh. So how do you at six foot eight become an undercover agent? Don't you kind of stick out? <laughs> yeah, you do. And, 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 you know, I never, uh, you know, I never grew a beard. I never grew my hair. I never, you know, I, I mean, we, we wore what we call old clothes or, you know, civilian clothes. We didn't wear uniforms and we had an office that was not in a police building and, and all this kind of stuff. And I, I guess the way I answer that question is this. The, the, the illicit drug business, the illicit drug industry, and, and it is an industry, is motivated by one thing, and that's greed. And so if you have money, you will find people to sell you drugs. And so, I, I mean, that was part of it. I, I, I was not terribly comfortable buying drugs. I did occasionally. But what I would do is we used to get complaints from citizens. It's like, hey, they're selling drugs at this house and stuff like that. So I would go and sit on a house and watch it. You know, we work nights, so it was, you know, it was usually dark. So you could sit down the street and watch the house. And if you thought something was going on, you know, a car pulls up, somebody runs in for, you know, 20 seconds, comes out, you know, gets in the car, pulls away. And that happens multiple times, right. you know, might be selling drugs. And so I would get a uniform car to pull that car over. And, you know, then I would, you know, kind of talk my way into the car. And can I search your car? Da, 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 da. And if that was the case, then I've now I've got a person on a felony. Do you want to work your felony off? We'll wire you up. You go back into the house. You buy for us in a controlled buy. And then we'll have SWAT hit the door and, uh, you know, go in and search the house and get the drugs and arrest the people. That was what I enjoyed. It was it was kind of the hunt. I enjoyed the right. hunt of doing that. Interesting. I think those late nights on a stakeout would be would be hard to uh, stay stay focused <laughs> in the middle of the night. They are in in a lot of ways, and and you know you you, you learn to not drink a lot before stuff. You know, it's like oh I don't yeah, to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, so I mean, there are some key things that you learn to not do before you go sit on a place and stuff. Yeah, so. absolutely. So then um, you ended up in hostage negotiation. I did. I joined the SWAT team um, as a hostage negotiator. Uh, negotiator. SWAT's divided up into two groups: the the tactical side; those are the men and women with you know all the toys and the guns and the, and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the negotiators. And we're I always say we're the smart ones because you know a lot of times we're sitting in a car or we're sitting in a mobile home, a command center with a bathroom and food and drink and all that. And, and the tactical guys are sitting out there in the cold or the or rain or whatever for yeah. hours, you know, surrounding a house. So yeah, it, it was just, it was a, I've always been associated or wanted to be associated with the best and SWAT on a police department is usually the best or usually the best officers. They get the best training, they get the best equipment. Yeah. So when the negotiators had an opening, I put in for it and was fortunate enough to, to get the job. So tell me a story of when um, hostage negotiation went right for you. Um, it went right about 90% of the time, but I'll give you a funny story because I mean, a lot of this stuff is really, really serious. Um, we were not a full-time SWAT team. And again, I'm going to date myself. We carried pagers with us. So when the pager went off, we we went to the area. We didn't have cell phones back then. And, and so I was working that particular night. I was, I was a sergeant. I was in uniform uh, in another district and the page went off. So I was able to get to the scene fairly quickly and I get there and I'm talking to the to the district officer. I'm like, what's the deal? It's like, well, he's drunk. He's barricaded himself in his house with his wife and a gun. Like, do you have him on the phone? It's like, yeah, we do. It's like, let me talk to him. 
And, and so I, I, I talked to him for about 10 minutes. And usually a negotiation lasts for hours. And you never upfront ask the person to come out or let the hostage go. It's just not something. And we can get into that if you want later. But And, and so I, I, I'm talking to the guy and I just had a feeling. I'm like, I said to him, what would it take for you to come out? And there was like silence on the end of the phone. And then he said, give me a beer. I said, if I gave you a beer, do I have your word that you would let your wife go and that you would come out peacefully? He said, do I have your word I can drink it? And I said, yes, you have my word. Do you have, do I have your word you'll, you'll let your wife go? He said, you have my word. So I gave $5 to one of the officers. I said, go down to the store, buy a beer. The tactical team put it on the front porch and I called them back. I'm like, hey, your beer's on the front porch, but you don't get it until you let your wife come out and, and you put the gun down and come out. All of a sudden, the front door flies open. Here comes his wife, you know, with her hands up. All of a sudden, here he comes with his hands up. The tactical team, you know, runs up, handcuffs him. We let him drink the beer and off to jail he goes. So, I mean, <laughs> that, that was like a 15-minute negotiation that is is kind of funny in a lot of ways. But, I mean, that's, that's not a, a typical kind of thing that we do. Right. Right. You can't buy everybody off with a $5 beer. You can't with a beer. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned that um, your, your father had cancer, your grandmother had cancer too. Was it at the same time? Yeah, it was. I mean, they were in bedrooms right next to each other uh, in in our house. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. my grandmother was in her eighties. I mean, not, yeah, I mean, we don't live forever unexpected, but you know, I think about my mom, you know, in one room, her mother's dying in the next room, her, her husband's dying. I, I mean, how horrible and, you know, just mind boggling that that is for me to think about. And, you know, my grandmother died first. And then about eight months later, my father died. So it, wow. it, it just was a it was a three and a half year ordeal through hell. And yeah. What kind I'm of cancers were they battling? Yeah. So. What kind of cancers were they battling? Uh, my grandmother had lymphoma and my father had breast cancer, which for a man back in the 1980s, they really didn't know what to do with him. Not to mention the fact he knew he was sick for a long time and kind of avoided going to the doctor. Mm. He was of the generation where men didn't go to doctors. And by the time he was diagnosed, he was in stage four. I mean, they pretty much told him to go home and die. Wow. And so how long was that journey with each of them? Uh, it lasted about three and a half years total. Uh, like I said, my grandmother died first. Um, you know, we buried her. And then about eight months later, my father succumbed to his disease. But, you know, the thing I remember about my dad, my dad was in real estate. And, you know, like I said, he had end stage breast cancer. The doctors really didn't know what to do. They were doing some stuff, but it was like, let's throw it against the wall, see if it sticks. We're not really sure if it will. Right. Um, but he lived another three and a half years And he did because I think he had a purpose. You know, he had something to do other than lay in bed and think, oh, my God, I'm going to die. He had something to do. And and I I sort of tucked that away in the back of my mind, thinking, Mm -hmm. well, you know, someday it's going to be my turn in the barrel here. So um, I I remember that you just can't sit around. You you, you have to have something to do with your life. And, And I remember reading an article about a professor, I forget what university it was, who lost his daughter at like 19 to some heart ailment. And was so, so grief stricken that he threw his life basically into research to determine, you know, how people deal with that kind of tragedy. And what he came out with was there's one thing that 
that makes people survive that. And that's purpose. They've got to have some mm. kind of purpose in life. And so, like I said, my, you know, my dad, my dad died, but after a three and a half year battle with the disease that should have killed them, you know, within months. Yeah. I, that's why I was just thinking if it was stage four and it was three and a half years, that's pretty amazing. It really is. But that's the thing, I guess, you know, for your audience, I, I'd like to say, you know, doctors will tell you, that, you know, go home and die or, you know, you got six months. Or, and I'm not telling you to disregard what the doctors say, but the doctors don't know your mind. The doctors don't know your heart and the doctors don't know your soul. And, you know, if you know that your son or your daughter is getting married in 18 months, by God, I'm going to be there for that. You know, so mm-hmm. if a doctor says, hey, you only got six months, don't just go home and die. Don't take them for their word. Prove her right. wrong. You go know, home and live. A lot of it is up to you. Yeah. Go home and live. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've had your own battle with cancer, haven't you? I I have uh, going on 10 years now. Wow. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, 2012, I'm a girls high school basketball coach in Texas, and I have this callus break open on the bottom of my foot. And and initially, I don't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of not healing, I made an appointment and went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. He took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It's just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I got a call from him. And as I said, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming mm-hmm. until finally he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen the form of cancer that you have. You have a rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And because your cancer is so incredibly rare, he recommended I go to MD Anderson Cancer Center to be treated. And so I did. So I, you know, I had a, a surgery to remove the tumor in my leg. I had all the lymph nodes in my groin removed. I had a skin graft to close the wound on the bottom of my foot. And then when I healed, my doctor put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon. And, mm-hmm. and I won't go into that. I was on interferon for five years. It gave me severe flu-like symptoms every week after each injection. So imagine <laughs> having the flu every week for five years. And that was not a cure. That was as my doctor used to say, we're trying to kick the can down the road. 2017, the interferon became so toxic to my body that I ended up in the intensive care unit with a fever of 108 degrees, which oh is usually not compatible with being alive. But fortunately, I was at a level one trauma center and they were able to stabilize me before sending me to the ICU. Had to stop the interferon. Almost immediately after stopping the drug, the cancer came back in the exact same spot on my foot. Uh, that led to 2018, the amputation of my left foot, cancer worked its way up my leg in 2019, two more surgeries. And then in 2020, an undiagnosed tumor kind of in my ankle area or at the, the end of my leg grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And mm-hmm. my only recourse right in the middle of the pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee. And I also found out I had tumors in my lungs and I am still being treated for those tumors now. As an athlete, um, how does that amputation affect you um, mentally and emotionally? Um, You know, it was, I mean, I think any surgery, you know, affects you, especially when you're losing body parts. Like I said, especially during the pandemic. I mean, 
my wife literally dropped me off at the hospital. You know, you're going right. to have your leg cut off. And it was like, you know, I got off, I got out of the car in a wheelchair and was wheeled to the, the pre-op area. And I was the only person there. I mean, my doctor had to get special permission to actually do the surgery because my leg was broken, you know, because of the cancer and I, it wasn't going to heal. It wasn't like we can set it and put it in a cast and send you home. Like we got to take the leg off or, I mean, this guy is in pain. And so it, it was, it, it, it was, that part of it was very hard, you know, just to be alone and to be by yourself. And, and then to realize that you're, you know, you're losing this leg. And I had a nurse that recently asked me, she said, well, what was it like to, you know, have your foot amputated and then have your leg amputated. And I told her, I said, you know, it certainly hasn't been easy. But what I told her was, is that, you know, cancer can take all my physical faculties, but mm -hmm. cancer can't touch my mind. It can't touch my heart and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are, Jill. You know, that's who mm -hmm. your, your, your daughter is, your, your husband is and that kind of thing. I mean, and we get all caught up in, you know, our looks and our body and all that kind of stuff. This is just a house or a vessel. Just or a shell. Yeah. Yeah. To, to house who we really are. So I think I would say spend more time on who you really are and less time on, you know, how you yeah. look. Or, yeah, I, I, I've lost the leg. I list to port a little bit. That <laughs> joke. Uh, you know, but you know, it is what it is. And, and I'll yeah. figure it out and I'll keep moving forward. So how do you feed your spirit and your soul and your faith during that time? What what keeps those alive? I, I mean, I've always had a strong faith. I, I think, again, that comes from our parents. You know, we were we're, we were raised Catholic. I am still Catholic. I, I know it's that's it, not popular to say a lot of times, you know, organized religion, oh, that's bad, you know. But for me, it's, it's not so much the organized religion as, as much as it is the God part of it. And, you know, when I first found out I had cancer, we're great, I think, here in the United States of, you know, we start down the road toward a goal and then we run up, we butt up against an impediment. Something gets in our way and, and you know, we can't get around it or over it or through it. And so we quit. But we just don't quit. Now we got to blame. Somebody's got to be blamed mm -hmm. for this. You know, I got to blame my parents or my boss or my station in life. And so when I got cancer, people were like, well, who do you blame? Like, what, what do you mean, who do I blame? Well, you, you got to blame somebody. You, I mean, you got this really? form of cancer. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't blame anybody. And then when people find out I have a faith life, they're like, well, you must blame God. And I'm like, no. I, and I sort of joked. I'm like, I don't think God got up on a Tuesday morning, checked his to-do list and said, Terry Tucker, cancer today. I, I, don't, I don't believe that at all. But I have been through some very, the, the five years I was in inter, on interferon, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't fathom what my doctor was asking me to do. I'm like, you want me to have the flu every week for five years? I'm like, that just doesn't, that's cruel. Right. I mean, that's just ridiculous. You know, and she was like, I'll do the best you can. I, I was like, you're nuts. And, you know, I did it for four years and seven months. So, I, I mean, I guess I am pretty nuts. But there were times <laughs> when I just prayed to die. I was so mm -hmm. sick of being sick that I prayed to die. Well, I didn't die. And But I think what God did was give me the strength to continue to go on. So I, I've never lost my faith. I've never, you know, been like, you know, oh, God, this is your fault. And I blame you for this. I don't blame it. I, in all honesty, I, I think a couple of things. One, I don't think you really know yourself until you've been tested by some form of, of adversity. That's and true. secondly, and this is going to sound kind of weird, I know, but cancer has made me a better person. So, mm -hmm. you know, in a lot of ways, I'm sort of thankful that, that I got this disease. You know, the introspection that comes from grief and trauma and hardship is, um, is hard bought 
um, you know, it, it brings us to a place of, of really revealing what is core to us. Right. It, it does. And, and, you know, I, it's funny. I mean, you're sitting here looking at me and, you know, when I do these podcasts, people are like, Oh, you, you look great. And like, I'm like, yeah, from here up, I do look great. I mean, from here down, <laughs> I am scarred terribly, you know, but I've earned those scars. You know, yeah. I've, I've worked my way through those scars. So I, yeah, they don't look good, but I'm proud of them because, you know, they didn't stop me. They, they didn't, you know, get to a point where it's, I can't do that. And, you know, we all have, we all have a breaking point. I mean, don't, right. I, I don't want anybody to think that's listening to us that, you know, that I have an S on my chest and a cape and I fly around with magical power. <laughs> I, I don't. I have bad days. I cry. I get down. I feel sorry for myself, even today when I'm in treatments and stuff like that. But this breaking point is so much farther down the road than we ever think it is. I mean, we quit mm-hmm. and give up and give in way before we ever think we should. I, I'm going to tell you kind of a weird story now here. So hang with me. Yeah. So I, I remember reading a study back in the 1950s that was done by a professor at Johns Hopkins University. Mm-hmm. And it was a very simple study. He took rats and he put rats in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long a rat could tread water before it sank and drowned. And the average rat rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as the rats were about ready to go under, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he put the exact same rats in the exact same tank of water. And the second time around, those rats, on average, treaded water for 60 hours. Now, think about Really? Yes. Think about that. 15 minutes. I'm going to die. I'm just not going to, oh, things aren't going to be good. I'm going to die. 15 minutes is all I can do. And then I'm going to die. Second time around 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives. We have to believe that somebody or something or our circumstances are somewhere down the road. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next month, but you know, maybe 10 years from now, things are going to get better. And two, just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever right. thought we, they could. You know, that's why I say, you know, that 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 limit for us that, you know, I can't go on, it's over for me, is so much farther down the road than we ever think it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when did you decide to start writing about your experiences and your insights? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, so I'm one of these kind of not real intelligent and kind of stubborn people. And, <laughs> you know, there's sort of an old joke that says, you know, when we talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to us, it's called schizophrenia. So I, God has never spoken to me. But what I think God does is put people in our path that make suggestions to us. Yes. You know, hey, Terry, you should write a book. Hey, Terry, you should write a book. And I totally, like I said, this is the, the not very bright, stubborn part of me. I'm not a writer. You're crazy. You know, and I, I was totally, you know, kind of poo-pooing that. I was like, no, I, I, I shouldn't do that. And that, that's ridiculous. And then I think also, though, that I'm smart enough to realize that when enough people start making that suggestion, that may be God's way of saying, hey, dummy, uh, listen to what I'm telling Pay you. Pay attention. Here. Yeah, exactly. Totally. You know, and, and and that's the great thing about free will or free choice. You know, it's like God would like you to write this book. You can say, nope, not going to write the book. I'm going to go over here and do my thing. God's like, OK, fine. Do whatever you want to do. And I know that's sort of a simplistic way of looking at it. But people started to suggest, Terry, you should write a book. And like I said, I started out, nah, I'm, I'm not a writer. I, you know, I can, mm-hmm. And so literally during 
the three months, well, let me back up just a little bit. I, I had had uh, a discussion with a former player that I had coached who had moved to the area where my wife and I live. And we had had dinner with her and her, her fiance. And after dinner, I remember saying to her, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? And said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth and living that reason. And then I had a young man in college who reached out to me on, on social media and asked me what I thought were the most important things he should learn to not just be successful in his job or in business, but to be successful in life. And I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. Not that those aren't important. They are. Right. And I think they should be taken, you know, as very important things. But I wanted to see if I could go deeper. So I started, you know, making notes and eventually had these kind of 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I stepped back and I was like, well, you know, I've got a life story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody <laughs> whose life emulates that principle. So literally during the three month period after I had my leg amputated, before I started chemotherapy uh, for the tumors in my lungs, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's kind of how the book came to be. That's great. So give me an example of two of the principles in, in your book. Yeah. So each chapter is a principle. It's not a very long book. It's about 120 pages. Um, and so each each chapter or each principle is a chapter or each chapter is a principle, however you want to say it. And, <laughs> and so it's always fun for me as the author when somebody reaches out and say, hey, I read your book, because there's always one principle that is the one that resonates, you know, with the reader. Sure. And so that's a great, you know, for me, a great starting point to talk to the person about that. And I wrote all 10 of them, but there is one that sits, sits with me that really resonates. And it resonates because I've done it so much in my mm -hmm. life. I'm not saying I'm proud of it, but I've done it. And here's the principle. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. I know I've done that. I, you know, it's like, oh, I should do, you know, I should start that business or I should take that job. It's like, oh, wait a minute. What if I'm not smart enough? What if I don't know enough? What are people going to say about me if I fail? You know, all that negative stuff that goes into your mind. And so you don't do it. And mm -hmm. you go back later. like, yeah. And I always tell young people, especially that if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you feel you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then, it's going to be too late to go back and do them. So that's that's one one of the chapters, one of the principles. Yeah. Um, I guess there's, a, there's another principle that I entitled, you are the person that you're looking to become. So, you know, you want to be somebody down the road. You're not that person yet, but you are that person. You know, and I know that sounds kind of like, what the heck is he talking about? You know, but you really are that person. You just haven't developed the skills and the life lessons and things like that to be that person. You're still that person. It's a process. It is. It's totally a process. And people don't get that. They're like, you know, oh, you know, I can't fail. I need to be successful. Well, let me tell you right now, anybody who's ever been successful in life has failed and failed miserably many times. The Repetitively, success, yes. <laughs> yeah, is paved with failure. So don't think that failure is, is a bad thing. And that's one of the another one of the chapters is fail and fail often, especially when you're young. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, one of the things that I admire about Eastern thought is that it's so much about the journey and not the destination and the journey in our lives. And, and, you know, you're exemplifying that by compiling these thoughts, but the journey of our lives is so important. And it's not, it's not just the destination that matters, right? It's not because the destination a lot of times is empty. You know, right. it, it's it's what you learned. It's the relationships that you cultivated along that journey that makes the journey worthwhile. And a lot of times when people get to the end of the journey or, the, you know, what, whatever they determine success or I've reached my goals, it's like, oh, okay. You know, it's not like, yeah. wow, this is great. No, the great was the journey, as you said. You know, the great yeah. was when I learned along it and the destination ends up being a little bit hollow. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, where can people hear more about your book, Sustainable Excellence? Yeah, Sustainable Excellence is available anywhere you can get a book online. So it's Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Apple iBooks. Pretty much if you type in Sustainable Excellence or my name, it'll come up, you know, somewhere on, online. And, and you can, it's in ebook form, it's in paperback and hardcover. It's not in Audible yet because I haven't had the time to record it, but it might be someday. Okay. Okay. And do you have a website or social media? I, I, yeah, all of the above. Yes. <laughs> I, have a, I have a website called Motivational Check. Uh, it's motivationalcheck.com. You can get access to my social media links there. Every morning I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought comes a question about maybe how you could apply that thought in your life. On Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message. You can leave me a message at Motivational Check. There are recommendations for books and videos to watch. So it, it's there's a lot of stuff going on there in addition to all the podcasts I've been on. So motivationalcheck.com will get you to it. Great. Well, we'll be sure and put those in the show notes. Um, Terry, it's just been a delight to talk to you and to hear your story. And um, you inspire me with your um, tenacity and your purpose. And I just thank you for investing in us this morning. Well, thanks for having me on, Jill. I've really enjoyed talking with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. You can find Jill at JillRiley.com, on Facebook at JillRiley.author, Twitter at JillRileyAuthor, and Instagram at JillRiley.author. Also, feel free to send Jill an email at Jill at JillRiley.org. Thanks for listening in and have a great day.